WERU Community Radio, 89.9 Blue Hill, WERU.org, and on our smartphone app. Empowering and inspiring community by sharing diverse music, information, and perspectives. Thank you for listening. Welcome to Change Agents, Conversations with Human Rights Advocates on WERU-FM. My guests today are Marcus Bruce and Roy Partridge. Both Marcus and Roy have spent decades teaching and addressing issues of race on college campuses. Marcus at Bates College and Roy at Bowdoin College, but also uh, a number of other schools. Both Marcus and Roy are black. We will discuss the issues that have occurred in the years past and the challenges still needed to be overcome. Uh, Roy, can we just start at the beginning uh, where, uh, well, at least your beginning. Um, <laughs> uh, where you? Where were you born? I was born in Tuskegee, Alabama. I actually usually say Tuskegee Institute, Alabama, because I was born on the campus of Tuskegee Institute in the black hospital there. And uh, when you say the black hospital, um, Tuskegee was a um, was a uh, a black institution. It was yes, it was definitely a black institution of historic proportions. Um, founded by Booker T. Washington, it was the first. And uh, it uh, has a great history in educating black young men and women and bringing them up in society with noble professions. And um, how, how old were you when you moved, uh, moved away? I was three, three and a half years old when I moved back to my mother's home state of New Jersey and lived um, there in Belmar for a while. And uh, even though it's um, every once in a while running the people who were, have memories from age three and three and a half, uh, do you have any memories in uh, from Alabama uh, relating to race? Uh, I was very young, so I actually don't. And being in the black side of town, all the people that I saw were black. <laughs> there was a white side of town with a white hospital, and I have seen that in my adult years, but I, I don't ever remember seeing it as a child. So, uh, I, I, Was there a time when uh, you uh, were trying to get a drink of water and went to <laughs> the, the white sony. Yes, I did do that when I was about 10 years old in Jackson, Mississippi, in the airport. Okay. I got off the plane and for the first time saw these signs that I saw, seen in books and heard about in news uh, broadcast. And whatever overcame me, uh, I can't say, but I went right for that white drinking fountain and turned it on and took a sip. And fortunately, and nothing happened. If uh, some people might have said, that's dangerous. In retrospect, I think that. <laughs> but at the time, I was a privileged black child from the north and <laughs> didn't know uh, any better. From New Jersey. <laughs> from New Jersey, absolutely. Uh, Marcus, where did you grow Um I was born in San Antonio, Texas. And spent the first uh, 10 to 11 years of my life there before moving to Montgomery, Alabama. Um, and then um, within about a year or two, moving again to the Philippine Islands. Um, and then to uh, Cape Cod, Massachusetts. I am uh, first born uh, Massachusetts. Uh, we were on an Air Force base there, Otis Air Force Base. And then my folks retired, and we moved to Hyannis, where they both worked in the, uh, the Cape Cod Mall. Um, when you were uh, young, growing up either um, in the South, did, did you have memories of uh, race being mm -hmm. a big part of 
Not it really. Not, not in my early years in San Antonio, Texas, first 10 years. I, like, like Roy, I kind of grew up in a, in a black neighborhood. There were, um, uh, there was a, a Latinx, Mexican-American uh, a businessman who owned a corner store I used to go into, you know. Um, and then my uh, members of my family worked for a Chinese grocer. Um, but usually we didn't um, see white or Anglo-Americans until we went out to big public events like rodeos or even to... Uh, to a doctor, but churches and clubs and things like that, no, they were predominantly black. It's when we, we moved to Alabama um, that um, I began, I became aware very slowly of um, racial differences. In fact, um, I became a member of Whole Street Baptist Church, which was one of the organizing centers for the Montgomery bus boycott. So. My family and I came there in 66, 1966, and uh, Montgomery bus boycott obviously hurt, had happened about 10 years earlier. Um, but it was a wonderful church. And also, um, I lived on base for a while, but uh, we had to get housing off base and off the base uh, until we could get housing in the Philippines. And so I was a part of a group, a small group of black students who integrated the junior high school in Montgomery. And, and Marcus, you uh, went to college at Bates, where you still are teaching. Um, when, when you were there, uh, did you have a, a sense of the number of black students at the, at the campus, and particularly compared to what it be now, would be now? Yeah, um, we were a small group, but we were pretty, we knew each other. <laughs> you know, we got together on the weekends or some of us were playing sports. There was an Afro-American society. Um, and so, um, yeah, among black students, I, I'd say there maybe have been about 20 or so um, when I was there, 73 to 77. Um, now there's significantly more. And also, the terms, you know, uh, you know, um, people of color is more inclusive now, um, or BIPOC. And so there's more diversity in that sense now than there was back then. Um, we kind of reveled in each, each other's company back then. Um, I'm sure the students do now, too. Uh, did, did you encounter any uh, difficulties to grading language? People perhaps without realizing it saying things or doing things that were disturbing. Yeah, on occasion, but nothing really major that I wasn't already aware of by the time I got there. You know, I mean it was when I stepped off the camp off campus into Lewiston back in seventy three, seventy seven, occasionally there would be people who would say or do something that I found, you know, offensive, calling me a name or um, threatening me or something like that. On campus, it was more, um, I don't know, it's, it's hard to describe, but no overt rate racism, but just subtlety, subtle differences in treatment occasionally. But Bates back then prided itself on being a place where everyone was accepted. And it, was, it had been a part of the mission statement, right? That Bates was founded in the 1850s, 1855. Um, to include both women and, and African Americans. I, I, when you talked about going into uh, downtown Lewiston, uh, there are black people, most of them immigrants, who uh, hear probably some of the same things that you talked about. Um, that doesn't mean that there hasn't been a, a huge effort. To in Lewiston to make uh, immigrants feel feel at home. But, uh, do you remember? Do you remember? Um, uh, I don't know. Maybe it was about a decade or so ago. Both of you, if you remember, the Many in One movement. Yeah, um, I was. Governor Baldacci, Baldacci um, you know, organized. I think he was part of the march or organizing a march in Lewiston when um, the mayor had written some pretty. Yeah, it, it basically discouraged Somali 
um, folks from coming to Lewiston. Well, there was a march, and um, I actually got a chance to participate in that with my sons. Um, uh, well, I was testing. I was one of the uh, the people who coordinated. Wow, that, oh, that's that good. Yeah, yeah. Um, I always thought that was a great moment because it it was so uplifting to see people from around the state come together. And there was a kind of a white supremacist group, I think, that had said had come to town and said made some remarks or something. But I always thought that was one of the most, um, it was really important for my sons to participate. Yeah, in. It, it was really um, striking. Um, Roy. I also participated in that march with my family. So I guess we were all there, didn't I? I, I, yeah. I, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, Roy, you went to Oberlin College in Ohio. Right. And uh, when you were there, uh, how many black students? Well, it's, a, it's an unfolding story. So I went to Bowdoin College. To Bowdoin College. I went to Oberlin College in 1965. And I went the summer, be, uh, spring before, to visit the campus. And there were 12 students on the campus at that point. And then the next class that came was 20, and then I class actually had 40 students in there. And they were about the, the object of um, increasing the enrollment for um, some years. And at that time, Oberlin prided itself on being much, it was much like Bates and prided itself on being an inclusive institution. It was the first college to, uh, to become, be a co-ed college in the land. And when I was there, I, there was a story that you were the first to admit blacks. Now, I know that wasn't true. I found that out later, but that was at least a part of the ethos of the institution. And it, and it definitely considered itself a radical place. Um, lots of protests, marches, both about civil rights and also Vietnam during my tenure there. Um, uh, did you experience any uh, comments or actions that made you feel uncomfortable or disturbed uh, about race? Well, this is very interesting. Um, yeah, there, there was a certain amount of unobvious segregation that occurred at Oberlin. And nobody said stay out keep away or any of that kind of thing. But if you looked at the social groupings of people, you would find that they were by race mostly. And um, same at the parties and other uh, events that took place. Um, what, what most stood out for me, however, was the death of Martin Luther King in 1968. And um, I just at that point realized that my white brothers and sisters had re had no clear understanding, even though he had come to the, Oberlin, not while I was there, but before, uh, and spoke. Um, they just really didn't understand civil rights and the civil rights movement and its importance. And so I wrote a letter to my white brothers and sisters, which was published in the Oberlin uh, Review, the news, the college newspaper, to try to explain to them <laughs> what the significance of of the death of Martin Luther King was for the campus. So, anyway. So it wasn't, yeah, no overt hostility, but just a lot of self-imposed segregation, I would say. I, I remember uh, after the death of Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, that I, uh, at that point, I was uh, probably a, oh, I don't know, maybe a junior in high school. And... Uh, I borrowed my mother's car to go just driving. I just needed to get away. And I always listened to Motown music. It was a black radio station in, in St. Louis. And they said, um, uh, everybody, please turn your lights on. And so I'm driving through my suburban neighborhood in there, and, and I'm getting really angry that there's nobody at their window was uh, nobody was um, putting their lights on and it, it took me about two days to say well 
most of them also weren't listening to the music I was listening to. <laughs> you know, so I gave them a little bit of a break, but I'm not sure they would have been. Um, yeah. um, yeah. uh, any other issues? At all? Yeah. Um, you know, the, I, the other issue for me was the absence of black faculty. There was one black faculty member there when I came, a math professor. And in my junior year, another black faculty member came as a visiting professor and ended up staying, who was an alum, actually. So, But there were exactly two when I graduated. So to have that, uh, was I found it difficult. I mean, I had that experience in high school and and before that, junior high and elementary school, too, uh, except I had one black teacher in all those years as well. So mm-hmm. but just Mark. having nobody really talk to about the issues, who um, was, you know, full-grown adult. Um, Marcus, did uh, you have anything um, similar? Were there black uh, teachers that had Bates at that time? Yeah, the first black teacher I had was the one I proposed to the dean of faculty for a job. Um, and um, it happened to be Dr. Melvin Donaldson, who just retired from, he was teaching out in, uh, in Pasadena, California, actually. But he was also a Bates College graduate, and he graduated um, basically the year I arrived at Bates, and he went off to do um, some work at uh, the Iowa's Waters workshop, and then he was working on a PhD, but was was working on the PhD from Brown in American Studies in in Lewiston, where he could write his dissertation. So I asked him if he'd consider teaching a course, and because I was a part of the Afro American Society, I proposed it to the the dean of the faculty. I went and said, "Look, can we have him do a short term course on African American literature?" And the dean said, "Yes." They hired him, and then they kept him for a year uh, before he went off to, to do other things. So my first teacher, African-American professor, was, was someone um, who I knew as a friend, who I knew was credentialed, but also was a, you know, part of a proposal that me as a student group had. And how important was it to you to have a black professor? I was just being able to see somebody who looked like you doing something that I thought was amazing. You know, I thought, you know, my religious studies professors at Bates were just amazing people. They were all, you know, white American men and they were great people. But I wanted to kind of picture myself doing that, too, you know, standing before a group and talking about religion or, or something else. But um, also there was a sense in which... You know, Melvin Donaldson, um, he had a sense of what our questions were and was responsive to them, didn't think they were odd. There were courses in African-American history, but quite often they were taught in a way that really didn't invite our comments or questions or concerns or allowed us to place ourselves in those histories. So seeing him standing in front of us and then raising questions, you know, we went back to the text with a new kind of energy, you know, to the literature. And that was exciting. Um, and I think that's what also made, you know, kind of inspired me to want to, to become a, uh, you know, an academic. Yeah. My um, professor was Al McQueen at, at Oberlin, and he was a, a, he was in the sociology department, but he studied soci, social psychology at, in the sociology department at the University of Michigan. And lo and behold, guess what I did when I, a few years later, I studied sociology and, and that department took social psychology at his alma mater. Yeah. Uh, so um, one might think that there was an answer to the question about was that important too. Yeah. Um, Very much so. Uh, uh, the, the phrase microaggressions is used a lot, particularly on, well, in, in all settings, um, and particularly about race. Uh, Roy, can you uh, explain what a microaggression is? Well, in lay terms, I would say microaggression is one of those little things that happens either in speech, behavior, action, 
that tends to diminish the significance of a person of, in this case, we'll talk about a person of color. It could be for other things as well. Um, so that that person is made to feel in some way less than the other. Um, one of my favorite microaggressions is is a little thing that I'm sure Marcus has heard too. Some of my best friends are black, as if they they therefore knew what black people were like or they did not recognize that they're not all the same. And just because you have a friend that's black doesn't mean you know anything about being black. Um, so that's that's one of my favorites because I hear I've heard that all my life. Uh, from various people, some of whom are my friends, <laughs> which is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. But I try to dissuade them from saying things like that in the future. So, so to to either of you, um, how how widespread is uh, is the the process of um, Microaggressions, uh, either toward black people or other people of color. And Dan, on I'm sorry to say this, I'm, I, I know this might be cut, but I have to plug in right now. So excuse me, I forgot to okay. plug in, but I'll be right with you. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I think it's commonplace uh, in my experience. I know uh, for students at, at Bowdoin now, they, they black students I'm talking about, um, find it happening to them all the time. And it's, uh, you know, people don't always intend to uh, have these kind of comments. Uh, and they all more likely than not do not understand the significance of the comments that they're making about black people. Black people are poor is another kind of uh, thing that assumption that many people make. Um, Black people are good athletes. That's another assumption. Uh, my daughter has experienced this, uh, and from very close friends who think black people have an extra twitch muscle <laughs> that allows them to be faster than white people. So there are all these kind of things that just are, they're replete. I mean, they're everywhere, <laughs> and they happen all the time. And it's a great burden on black people and other people to correct those things because it's endless. <laughs> um, I, I wonder, and I'll um, ask you, Marcus, um, I, uh, my sense of interviewing both students of color and on other issues with microaggressions, but mostly people of color that uh, that talking about uh, Talking about microaggressions, uh, maybe maybe a little bit less makes less of the impact. A thought then talking about it lessens the impact of it. Well, if if we talk about this as um, being about um, microaggressions, that they're small aggressions, gives people the sense that it's not that big a deal. Yeah, and yeah. Um, I know in the conversations I've had, it seems like it's with people of color on yeah. college campuses that it may be cumulatively a very, very big deal. I think it is. I mean, I it, at least for me, it is because I feel that um, when students decide they want to share something like this with me, um, they usually are, you know just are utterly frustrated and tired of it, really by it, um, and they're looking to, to me for ways of addressing it. Um, these things, I don't know if I always have answers. So, um, yeah, it's it's difficult. Uh, Marcus, is there a way that you can turn your sound up a little bit? Oh, sure. I'm um, sorry if I... How's that? Is that better? Yeah, maybe even a little higher. A yeah, little more. Uh, that's as high as I can Okay, go. that's fine. Yeah. And then... Okay. Uh, um, I, 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 I remember two 
microaggressions that black students have told me about. One at several different colleges and universities, which is, you know, it's a, it's a really nice spring day, and uh, you know, three, four, five, six black students uh, sitting together, and somebody says, uh, "Can can we make a bet on how many?" more minutes it's going to be until the campus photographer comes out. <laughs> um, uh, I, I gather that resonates with. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, that, that does. Uh, I don't know. Well, you know, I do know. I mean, I sometimes, and you know, I, we've talked about, the three of us have talked about this. Before, but um, I'm just going to put, put ourselves on hold. Uh, uh, we're back again. We're trying to we're dealing with a little bit of uh, uh, technical is issues. Uh, you are listening to Change Agents, Conversations with Human Rights Advocates on WERU. My guests today are Marcus Bruce and Roy Partridge. Both Marcus and Roy have spent decades teaching and addressing issues of race on college campuses. Marcus at Bates College and Roy at Bowdoin College, plus other institutions. Both Marcus and Roy are black. We are discussing issues that have occurred in years past and the challenges still needed to be overcome. Um, so, Steve, if I could make one comment on your, your earlier comment about microaggressions and Marcus's response about the cumulative effect of those things. So that's that's definitely one big issue, the cumulative effect of it and how it impacts on people's lives and their sense of self and their awareness of other people's sense of them. So that's a huge thing. But there's another thing I was just thinking about as we were talking about this issue, which is that those microaggressions come out of a body of thinking, a way of understanding the world and people in it. So if I don't know, well, I call them micro theories about Black people. And so even though it's just one statement at one moment in time, it kind of comes out of a body of statements that that person probably has. And it triggers in the person that receives the statement that same kind of body of uh, what are black people, you know, and then, and then I've mentioned a few things, you know, better athletes. And then the, one of the more nefarious of them is that black people are not as intelligent as white people. Uh, and even if that's not said, once you once a person says another one of these stereotypes, it triggers in both people, I suspect, oftentimes, the whole set panoply of microaggressions. So it's not even as simple as that one statement might seem. Um, and it's not as, uh, you know, innocuous, to, to use a word, uh, and suggesting what you were talking about earlier, as, as it might otherwise be. And, and perhaps uh, it, that becomes unconscious bias, uh, where people really aren't realizing. I completely agree with that. I, I, I completely agree with that. It's just sometimes you wonder where it comes from, those comments, but it does come from a, a particular way of thinking about black folks and how they live and act in the world. And so it's it's... It's tiresome um, and exhausting, you know, I think mentally and emotionally exhausting, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I've heard my students just say, I'm tired. I, I want to work on these issues. I want to talk to people about these issues. But sometimes things come at them that are just really overwhelming after a while, just you know, you talk about the slings and arrows of outrageous misfortune, you know, what are you going to do? You know, they're, they're these little things, right? But then if you, you start to take up arms against them, right, then, you know, people think you're always angry or you're always ready to fight or something like that. It's just you want to communicate, but there are these little things that get in the way that have to be clarified. And and you're not always in the mood to clarify. <laughs> I'm not always in and, and if I could just add to that, I was thinking is this, these are thoughts, this conversation is provoking in a way. Uh, and I mentioned behavior, it, microaggressions can be behavior. They don't have to necessarily be something that's spoken. 
So I, you know, I have experienced it. I'm sure every black person in this country has experienced it at one time. The stairs, yeah. you know, you, you, you're in the wrong place. And yeah. people stare at you in a certain way as though, what are you doing here? Why are you here? You know, and and they really, in, in other countries, the stare can be even worse. But in this country, it's kind of a, uh, yeah. I, you can't see that on the radio, what I did, just did. But it's just a look of surprise and yeah. disbelief that you're there. Well, I, I've heard from uh, from black students, both women and men, who walked into an upper-level class, often a, a science class. Um, and uh, the, this is on the first day of the class, and the professor saying, uh, excuse me, I think you're in the wrong class. And I remember this one particular uh, woman who uh, wanted to make sure that I knew that uh, she got the highest grades of anybody in that class being the only black student there. Mm-hmm. Yes, and I, just along the exact same lines, I, I teach taught for years a course called Racism, and one black woman came into my class this first day, first week of school. Uh, this may have been her second or third class, mine, and she just was almost in tears talking about walking into a math class and the same thing that you just mentioned, the professor said, oh, I think you're in the wrong place. And it just destroyed her uh, in so many ways. Uh, and she, of course, didn't know what to say. First-year student, professor, you know, with some renown. What are you going to do? Uh, Marcus, if, have you uh, heard about or experienced similar comments from professors who were probably thinking what they were saying was... was um, kind when in fact it was um, anything but. Yeah, I I think sometimes um, as highly educated, as degreed, (laughs) you know, as uh, my colleagues are at at times on these issues, um, some, not all, but some are, are, are just insensitive in their comments and they don't realize how it impacts not only their students, but the message it sends to white students as well, um, and to to other to other faculties. So, yeah, I sometimes I'll take a moment and take a deep breath, and then you know quietly um, you know approach a colleague. Um, and I've gotten different responses from immediate denial um, that what they're doing is you know is problematic to you know people just falling apart in tears. Um, and I'm not sure where to go with that always, <laughs> but um, there are times when I feel I have to I have to speak out because what they say and do impacts, impacts not only students, but also me. I hope that's clear. I mean, it's, I, I, it's crystal you know, clear. It's just, uh, it's, you know, it's not me calling anyone racist or anything. It's more a matter of saying, that's a troubling remark, and that's inappropriate, and you might want to reflect for a moment before you say that again, because the way I hear it is is like this. Um, you know, I've had colleagues who've said things to me that I finally had to say, well, please don't talk to me like that, or else we won't be able to, to meet again. And there are people I, I don't meet with anymore because they refuse, you know, to conduct themselves in a way that's, you know, I've told them I, I consider offensive. Um, I'm sorry that happens. Um, and I wonder, uh, for, from both of you, do you think that the, uh, the level of um, microaggressions has reduced over uh, the period of time that you've been at Bates and Bowdoin um, or uh, stayed the same or became worse? Mm. Yeah, that's a hard one. Um, I, you know, I think it's two things that happened. Uh, in the old days, people, um, 
didn't necessarily have these conversations with you. <laughs> you know, they would just figure, well, there's not much that we have in common. He's black. I'm white. You know, we'll, we'll meet at a faculty meeting or whatever, but that, but beyond that, or department meeting, if you're in the department, whatever. Beyond that, there wasn't much social engagement in, in the old days. And now there's a lot of social engagement. And now you hear these things just with some regularity. So I don't actually know whether it's less because it feels more to me in some so, way. So I want to make sure I understand why it feels like yeah. more. It's just there's just more uh, openness to have conversations that deal with race. Um, so that, that people are willing to talk about the things that they've been thinking all along but haven't said in the past. Uh, now they will say them sometimes to you directly, me directly, um, without necessarily realizing that it's offensive. Um, and in the past, they just wouldn't talk. They would just t- con- constrain their conversations to, you know, who, what course are you going to teach uh, next semester? And, uh, you need to get in this form to get your uh, approval for this, that, or the other thing, and things of okay. that sort. Um, but come on, guys, think about it this way. I mean, you know, one of the things I want to say to follow up with what Roy says: we're all in the academy. We're academics. We think if we take a course, hey, I got this. Okay, <laughs> that's a, that's the thing. In other words, we, you know, there's so many courses and workshops in equity, diversity, and inclusion that give us the sense that, oh, we know this, I got this. And that's only the beginning, you see. That's not, it doesn't mean you, well, I got an A in my equity, inclusion, and diversity course. No, 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 it's it's the beginning. And how we relate to each other on a day-to-day basis, that's more of a difficult challenge. I think those workshops and, and courses are important, but this kind of work is never done. It's it's never done. Now, that might sound discouraging to people, but I don't think it's ever done. We always have to be mindful and vigilant about what we say and do on matters of race uh, in this country because we're, we, we're still coming to an awareness of inequities um, in, in the history of this country that impact us now. The more effort and time I've spent over the past uh, couple of years focusing on on issues about race and unconscious bias, um, I realize that I have further to go, um, and uh, and I uh, I don't view it as. Um, I view it as something just to be honest about. Yeah, it's, yeah. It, it's hard to shed uh, whatever, however old you are, whatever number of years, yeah. uh, the bias that has permeated yeah. uh, white people. You know, I, don't, I, I, I guess I'm going to say I don't use a lot of social media, Facebook or Twitter. Um, my, my partner does. She... She's much more sophisticated with it, but I think it's made us more aware of of things that take place that usually went on, you know, unexamined or or that we didn't know about that flew under the radar. I mean, the whole thing with George Floyd's murder um, is something for me. I and I this is the first time I think I've ever spoken publicly about it, but. I've only seen snippets of that, but I can't watch the film in its entirety um, because I'm deeply troubled that in the, you know, in this 21st century, right, that someone can can be shown dying, being killed on camera, and the the animus that's there, um, and the way in which different people respond is equally as disturbing to me. So, even though we've we have courses, we have workshops, we have social media, we have ways of making us aware of prejudice and, and, and discrimination. Um, I still think we have trouble putting into place new behavior, new attitudes. Um, it, it's difficult. So I, I want to follow up 
on on this. I think it's um, some important the issues you've talked about and and, and more. Um, uh, the murder of George Floyd, and for anybody listening who uh, does not know about that, uh, was is a black man in Minneapolis who was killed by murdered by a uh, by a black police officer while other police officers watched him. White, uh, white. I'm sorry, and uh, um. And uh, he died, and uh, this past summer, uh, the officer who choked George Floyd to death was convicted of murder. Um, has, has the death of George Floyd impacted, how has it impacted Black students and how's it impacted white students? Well, I, for whatever the reason, it seems to me that the murder of George Floyd, part, I mean, it's partly because it was on TV for nine minutes, uh, has really awakened uh, a lot of people uh, to the heinous crimes of uh, some police officers. Again, I don't want to throw everybody under the bus. It's just some who are, you know, the rotten apples, as it were. But um, and in a way that has actually surprised me, uh, because there was a similar kind of event in Staten Island, um, not I don't know a year or so before. Same thing, and the white police officer choked a, a black man to death. And that had some notoriety, but it didn't have the impact of George Floyd by any stretch of the imagination. Um, so I'm glad it happened in terms of the awakening of people to the lives, lives of, of black people. Um, but uh, I don't know why it happened in quite the way it did happen, because the other was televised, too. Um, so it's not as though it weren't televised. Um, I don't know if Marcus has some thoughts about that or something else. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I'd say my students, um, they want to talk about it, um, both black students and white students. Um, I happen to find it very difficult to talk about. Um, both of my sons, I have two sons older, that, you know, we have dinner every once in a while um, and and talk over a range of issues. And both of them involved have been involved in in protest movements, um, especially around George Floyd. And I, I guess I listen to them. I want to hear their frustrations and their anger. Um, but, and I have anger around his death as well, George Floyd's death as well. But when it comes to the classroom and talking about it, I still find it deeply painful and troubling to navigate um, with my students um, because there's, you know, I have a certain amount of anger about it and frustration with um, 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 policing in the United States. Um, and yet at the same time, I, I want to provide a space in my classroom in which students can speak from where they, they stand. And sometimes that's hard to hear. So I haven't talked a lot about George Floyd. I, I'll talk about other historic events much further back, the whole practice of lynching in America, but George Floyd is too new and too raw and too disturbing to me. And, and the way in which the media kept putting up images of this man um, and this man's death, I, you know, we had the chance to watch him die. And that's, that's just too much for me. Um, that's overwhelming. Now yeah. most people say, well, you know, Hey, you know, you need to be, you know, able to address this, but yeah. No, you, you, you're able to do what, what you feel you can do at the moment. I think. Yeah. Um, I'm just going to take a, a quick break to come back to uh, uh, inform people who have just turned in. Uh, welcome to Change Agents, Conversations with Human Rights Advocates on WERU. My guests today are Marcus Bruce and Roy Partridge. Both Marcus and Roy have spent 
decades teaching and addressing issues of race on college campuses. Marcus at Bates College, Roy at Bowdoin Colleges. Both Marcus and Roy are black, and we are in the midst of discussing uh, difficult issues. Roy. Yeah, so I was going to say there is one explanation that I have heard that um, distinguishes the event in Staten Island from the Floyd, George Floyd incident, and that is we were in COVID, and COVID uh, gave more opportunity for people to sit at their screens and watch this thing over and over and over and over in endless loops, it seemed, um, so that, that probably didn't make a difference. Uh, I was actually thinking initially of the, there was a protest at Bowdoin by students, faculty, and staff after the, the Staten Island murder and um, where we literally laid on the on the ground, uh, the floor of uh, the cafeteria for the amount of time that he was uh, being choked to death. So it wasn't unacknowledged. It's just, it's just maybe accumulation of the, the events too and, and for fairly close proximity. And in both cases where this seemed to be such an awful thing to have happened that somebody, and you can watch somebody die. Uh, is really profound. Uh, and as Marcus says, very difficult to talk about, certainly to think about. But you know, Roy, after you, s- you said that about students um, lying on the floor of the cafeteria, we had uh, some Bates students who did the same thing mm. and, and the, and the Bates dining hall. And they, they, they laid down for a, a certain amount of um, uh, seconds or minutes on the floor. And I was so proud of them. It was quite powerful because it said, they were saying, let's stop business as usual. And I think those were students who were connected with the multi-faith chaplaincy at Bates. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that encouraged me. That inspired me that they could come up with new creative ways to get us to pause and think. Um, but how to teach that moment, that's still a challenge. Yeah. I, 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 I don't know if this resonates for you, but when I first heard about it, it was before I had watched the video. Um, I, it, it wasn't something that changed me, um, uh, in part because uh, uh, all three of us grew up the, the civil rights movement, being on television and seeing the violence um, that I have uh, spent uh, uh, the past 30 years either prosecuting people for for hate crimes or um, trying to reduce police violence. And, and I, uh, I missed it for the first time some amount of time. Did that resonate for, for any of the, either of you? That, uh, that, 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 that black, that violence toward black people by police officers or others is, is not new. Um, yeah, no, no, no. I mean, you know, one of the things that <laughs> um, Black people say sometimes is that every one of us has a story about an encounter with a police officer, right? Um, or a part of a young black person, whether it's a young black uh, uh, male or female teenager, is to have the talk with their their family about police and how to conduct yourselves. Um, I've done that. I've had that talk with my sons. I've been in the car with my sons when we've been stopped by the police and they were deeply angered over it and they wanted to say something. And I said, nope, you're going to be quiet and just sit here. Um, and I will, I was in the driver's seat and I'd say, and I put my hands on the wheel where they could be seen. I, I asked if I could get the, you know, insurance card out of the, the glove compartment. I also asked, you know, about they need to see my, my license and my son's, who were in their, their 20s, they sat in the car, angry with me, but at least they were being quiet because I was saying, we don't want to provoke anything because I have been asked to exit the car before. And I have been even called, Yeah, I've been told by the police after someone's yelled a derogatory uh, word at me in the middle of the street, 
that I should go home and leave it alone, right? Um, and so I haven't always expected um, fair treatment or even humane treatment from some police uh, folks. Um, Thank you. That uh, is is really important. And just to make sure that everybody understands um, why um, you ask the police officer uh, if you are, are black or other person of color, um, whether you can reach into the glove compartment, is that um, uh, if you do, a police officer may think, mm. oh, that's a black person and they're going to have a gun. Uh, and that's dangerous. Um, Steve, that's no guarantee. That's no guarantee, even when you do it that way, that you won't be harassed or something violent can happen. It's a, it's a really uh, a kind of unsettling moment and experience to have. Um, but at that, at that moment, I was not only protecting my sons, I was teaching my sons um, something. Um, yeah, something important. Um, uh, just just to let everybody know, we've got about five minutes. Things okay. have gone quickly here, so. Right. I wanted to add one comment to the this to the police situation. Um, for for me, you know, I do exactly. I do the same thing as Marcus. I roll down my window, and I actually get my license and uh, registration and put it on the dashboard, and then put my hands on the wheel. <laughs> So, so that there's absolutely nothing I have to reach for <laughs> in, in the process of this encounter. But I must say, having done that, um, I have been, and I need to say this on this show, respectfully treated by all in Maine, all the police officers that have stopped me. Uh, so, again, I want to make sure we understand it's not every police officer. There's some. But I have been fortunate and uh, been very well treated in the times that I've been stopped in Maine. So, thank you. Um, uh, if it, it strikes me, and I'm, I'm really going to limit this to about two minutes, and and we could spend a whole um, hour on this, but it strikes me that um, much of what we've talked about um, is that uh, everyday things that. Uh, that me as a white person doesn't think about is um, creating significant um, stress and anxiety for black people and other people of color. Uh, just for each of you in a couple of sentences. To... Well, there, there's driving while black, which most people have heard of at some point, and we've already talked about that a little bit. And there's also, as I was joking to a friend, walking while black. <laughs> and if you're walking in the wrong neighborhood and people don't know who you are, or you can you can get the stare that I talked about earlier, and you can feel very uncomfortable. And even if nothing happens, it can be stressful because you spend your time, I spend my time waiting for it to happen. So I carefully choose the neighborhoods in which I walk. <laughs> to make sure that I don't look like I'm out of place in some way and how I'm dressed and all that kind of stuff. Um, when, it's, uh, when I go out of my house, you know. So, uh, in, in, uh, Marcus, in one minute? Yeah. Um, I think the, the same thing, I, you know, walking while black. I usually walk around the Bates campus, but I, I have a route that takes me out into the countryside, and I make it a point of greeting people and saying hello. I wave at the police car as it comes by. Um, I try to show myself to be someone um, that, you know, is, is not a threat to them. Um, but it is an anxiety I carry with me when I walk in, yeah. in Maine. And, and I think that uh, we could probably spend, and maybe it would be a, an interesting and important story to talk about all of the uh, the anxieties that racism kind of puts on black people and other people of color. Um, and just for a, uh, just for in two or three words, 
um, uh, maybe five or six. Do you have hope that things are going to get better in the next generation? Uh, uh, yes. I have a great deal of hope in my sons and in my students. Um, they have a, an energy, an intelligence, a passion that um, renews my commitment to, to make changes. So, yeah, there are some of my students who inspire me. I'm, I'm not kidding about that. And my both my sons in the same way because I see them going out and, and engaging the world in, in a way that, that offers some hope, um, not only to others, but also to their dad. Thank you. Roy, in one sentence. I likewise have hope, and particularly I have hope, as Marcus has already said, in the coming generations who seem to be doing a much better job than my generation did. So I thank you both deeply for this conversation, and I wish it could have happened uh, for much a longer period of time. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, you have been listening to Kay Jensen's conversation with human rights advocates. I guess today have been Marcus Bruce and Roy Partridge, uh, both have spent decades teaching and addressing issues of race on college campuses in Maine and elsewhere. Uh, we have discussed uh, the changes that have occurred in the challenges that have happened in the past years and what the challenges will be in the next many days and weeks and months and years. Thank you very much. Midway through last century, bluegrass music emerged from a melting pot of cultures creating a simmering cauldron that blended the banjo and its African roots, spiritual rhythms, and fiddle styles that arrived through Acadia. Those early roots of bluegrass have sprouted countless branches and tendrils of music styles with similar instrumentation but new interpretations. The Bronze Round program explores these varied musical styles every Thursday night from 8 to 10 p.m., You'll hear a collage of sounds that honor the traditions of bluegrass while presenting today's innovators. That's Bronzewound, Thursday nights from 8 to 10 p.m. only at Community Radio, WERU 89.9 FM in Blue Hill, and all over the world at WERU.org. This is WERU's News and Public Affairs Manager, Amy Brown. If you're a regular listener, you're probably aware that all kinds of cool things can be found on our website. We have a community calendar, playlists, an on-demand playback system for the music shows, archives of our local public affairs shows. You can even listen to a live stream of what's currently playing on the radio. But you might not know about one of our newest pages. We now have a page on the website that makes it super easy to subscribe to podcasts of our public affairs programs. Just go to WERU.org slash podcasts, click on subscribe, and your favorite shows will be automatically delivered to your smartphone or other device every time a new one airs. Don't miss anything. Subscribe to your favorite WERU shows right now at WERU.org slash podcasts. And whether you listen on the radio, on the WERU app, the live stream, the archives, or podcasts, thank you. Do you own or manage a business in Midcoast, Down East, or Bangor areas of Maine? Are you in charge of outreach for a local nonprofit organization? If so, consider connecting with our listeners and supporting WERU at the very same time. It's what we call underwriting. You know the announcements at the top of most hours? The ones that begin with, support for WERU comes from. By underwriting, you are telling our listeners that you value community radio, just like them. To learn more, please contact our underwriting manager, 
Dennis Howard at Dennis at WERU.org. That's Dennis with one N. More information can also be found at WERU.org under support. Or you can call 469-6600. Thank you for